Right, hello folks, we're back. Uh, this is episode five. Five already there, episode five of Talk ADHD, good grief. Uh, and as you could tell, uh, this will be going out very near that, that day. That's why uh, there's, there's two of us in Christmas jumpers, because uh, you've got to theme this, so. Didn't get the memo. No, I know, I'll let you off. Last minute. So here we go then, episode five. And again, it's it's one of the first topics we've been asked to cover, and it's also one of probably the most difficult, biggest, and probably one that we're going to have to go back to because we are talking all things, or maybe not all things, but we're talking addiction. We're talking addiction and its links to ADHD and other. Um, why are so many people with ADHD and potentially autism at risk of developing addictions? How do we spot it? What are the signs? What is an addiction anyway? I think is going to be important, isn't it? Um, and, and and what what can we do to try and help? Before we start, though, and I want to make this really clear, because, again, the community have asked some brilliant questions about addiction and what it means to them. What this podcast can't be, this one or any other one, as we talk about addiction, is is sort of a recovery exercise. Um, we, we can't tell anyone what recovery should or shouldn't look like for them or or how to to go about that. That's a very different topic. But I think in this podcast, what, what is important to do is to really properly, openly and honestly talk about the fact that this is an issue for a lot of people. This does a, cause problems in relationships of all kinds, work, family, etc. And also to try and broaden what we mean when we say addiction. Uh, and we'll we'll probably explain that in a moment. So I'm joined by my two favorite experts again. I've got Sarah Jay and Andrew Jay. Um and and they can bring again this ADHD clinical knowledge. Sarah has a massive experience having worked in and around addiction as well. And I'll let you tell everyone about that in a minute, if that's okay. Um, and for my part, and I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. I am sat here in front of you all as an addict in recovery. I have no shame in saying that. In fact, it fills me with great pride to be able to say I'm in recovery 10 months this Tuesday, uh, two, 10 months, two weeks ago, in fact. So, you know, I'm coming up for 11 months. I'm very proud of that. So I can talk about this from a very personal point of view of how did it interplay with my ADHD and, and autism and why I wasn't able to admit it for so long and what's happened since. But I think it's important to start uh, with the basics. But before we do, Sarah, do you want to give people an overview of what what have you done in and around this topic and what did it teach you about the links between what you learn about addiction and ADHD. Right. Um, so my background before I came to the world of ADHD was working in um, criminal justice field. So working in what would be classed as forensics. Um, I worked in prisons as a care coordinator. So people in the long-term prison state, working as a mental health nurse, as well as what, well, would be classed as a um it's now a local community cat bay prison so people who would be remanded quite quickly from court for lots of different difficulties um worked in the mental health team so we'll get called down to see people 
worked hand in hand with the addiction services that were working in the prisons. Also spent a lot of time working in as a criminal justice nurse, working in police stations, courts, probations, and again, working hand in hand with people who were on DRRs, who were um, drug rehabilitation orders, working with people as a mental health nurse, um, looking at their difficulties if they were on alcohol um, treatment requirements. Always weaved in and out of everything you've done in mental health because it goes hand in hand. Then worked with some prolific offenders and worked around um, substance use and was having this conversation with Andrew earlier on and one of the people, so I, I, I did a, a research project and one of the clients in that research project had ADHD and it was that identification of them, totally forgot I did this, identification and then getting them into mental health services, local mental health services for that ADHD assessment and then diagnosis and treatment. It was an adult. And then was working in the world of ADHD and just before I left the NHS, I took a role as a clinical lead working in a complex needs team. So working with people who were at risk of homelessness or were homeless, working with the hostels. There was two social workers from the local council and two nurses. I was the mental health nurse. The other nurse, uh, you know, if you cut through the middle, like a stick of rock, you'd have substance misuse. Done it for years and years, knew we stuff. And what was evident in the time I spent doing that um, for a good couple of years was that new developmental difficulties played a, a huge part. So I think we talked about the last time step care model, you start with, with all mental health or primary care, you start at sort of level one, two and three. And I remember having people, other workers in level one coming to me going, I've been told that you have a lot of knowledge about neurodevelopmental difficulties, ADHD, autism. Can I just ask you, I've got Billy Bloggs has come in and Billy is using lots of cocaine, but they're not using it to party. They are using cocaine to be able to focus at work, to be able to come home and do the DIY they need to do at mm. home. But it is really expensive. And they are really struggling with the fact that they are using cocaine to be able to function and deal with their life. What do I do? And my first words out my mouth were, do an ASRS. <laughs> so do a screening tool and see what they're coming back with. This isn't just a little bit to party. And that was really common. So meeting people who were within addiction services um, or in the homeless hostels. I remember having a client where we supported the homeless hostel with somebody who was waiting for an autism assessment and I would quite happily put money on the fact that they got that positive diagnosis and working with the hostel staff to support that person um, with their presentation and their needs around autism and it wasn't a one-off it was mm. really common so we did training sessions but yet again as we've talked a lot you know nurses did not initially have a lot of training on neurodevelopmental disorders you go out to the community and the community mental health teams, the um, the the addiction services, the 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 frontline um, staff working in A and E, working within police stations. It's, you know, there's an awareness. They might do an hour online training on neurodiversity. I'm working with clients who come through um, police stations or courts. That's it. So that's where yeah. my um, my background and my contact with 
people who have a dual diagnosis, as it's called in the literature, coexisting conditions, but dual diagnosis. Um, it's been part of my career all the way through. Fantastic. Which means your, you know, your history, your information, and, and you spoke about this when we first heard you on the podcast about this, what, what you probably knew then and what you know now and what you understood then and what you understand now, you know, we... It, it just changes and changes. And then Andrew and I have spoken again at length about this. So let's let's come to you, Andrew. It sounds like a really obvious statement when we have a condition, a neurodevelopmental condition that has impulsivity and hyperactive thought and poor decision-making at its core. It seems like a really obvious statement to say there might be some risk that we may be finding ourselves uh, indulging in things or doing things that you know we shouldn't or doing them too much but let's let's do a very brief so what's the, what is the science then what's what's making that the case oh hold on can't hear you stop andrew you've gone is that just me Oh, no, it's me. There you go. That'll do it. <laughs> right. So go on in. I know yeah. I've asked you one of those questions. Yeah. So it's another one of those multi-layered questions. Um, and I'd like to, as I usually do, boil it down to basics. Yeah, go for it. Um, and contradict things I've said before. <laughs> just, just for fun. Why not? Um, and I, I'm going to talk principally about substances yeah, sure. but but that does extend out yeah. um so the majority of illicit substances that people abuse are dopaminergic right yeah so most substances so sarah's just been talking about cocaine in her worked example but you will see an increase in synaptic dopamine with cannabis Certainly amphetamine, you know, that's what's we're prescribing that as a treatment for ADHD. Um, but you see it in other substances as well. So there's something biological there going on that starts something. And for those of us with ADHD, I'd like you to go back and think about starting secondary school. So you've you've left primary school, you've you've left the running around the playground with your coat over your head, catching the wind and, and being noisy and all of those things that it's okay when you're in primary school to yeah. do. Yeah. Then you go into secondary school and with ADHD, probably not diagnosed, um, you hit this wall of challenge, this wall of demands on attention, organization, executive functioning. Right. Yeah? Um, and I think most of us can sort of, Certainly, pretty much everyone I've ever diagnosed when I ask them to think about this this time in their life can talk about the experience of being in what's now called year seven. Yeah. yeah that, that ultra shock of going into secondary school. And at around that time, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, we're seeing puberty coming. We're seeing an, an awareness of ourselves. Um. A, a social awareness starting to happen. And we start to notice that we're different. We start to notice that there are things that make us stand yeah. out. We, and we don't want people to see those. 
but we try and hide it. And for me, that usually is the root of the more common than not anxiety disorder that underpins our, our ADHD. That's where it comes from. We're starting to question ourselves. Um, and those few years, that early puberty through to, to GCSE years, we're really wrangling with who we are, where we fit in, and all of that. And a lot of us have memories of not feeling like we yeah. do. Yeah? With this uncomfortable knot in our, yeah. in our solar plexus. We just, something doesn't feel right. We don't know what it is, but we don't seem to work like everybody else works. And at that point, you face a number of choices. You can go in any number of directions, and people do. I've heard thousands of stories, and, and those stories are all different, but the, the, there are some common themes, and certainly one where there's substance misuse mm. is the discovery that there are substances that make you feel different, think differently, mm. think more like how you see other people thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and that can start a, a journey in a very different direction. But one of the things it can do is we f I finally found something that makes me feel better. So I'm going to do that more because mm -hmm. that's what we do. We get to, if, you do, if something makes you feel good, you, you're going to do it more because yeah, it takes yeah. away that feeling of I'm not right, but this makes me feel right. Um, and, and there are all sorts of social implications of that, but the, the personal implications of that is you move further and further away from this sense of difference. Right. Um, mm. so, so for me, I, th I think there's there, there is substance misuse and su substance use and yeah. can be the beginning of finding something that at last makes sense where nothing has so far where everywhere i've turned every teacher i've gone to and said i feel yeah. different and every time i've said but i can't concentrate on this and i've been pushed away finally something dials up my focus and concentration a bit i can finally think through all the noise the video you played last yeah, week you yeah, know yeah. that, that sort of, I, I can finally just switch that off you know I, I talked about that after the video last time last time the neurotypicals probably did just switch off with mm. that and uh, um, we ADHDers can't but we find a substance or an activity that helps with that of course we're going to do it more yeah. yeah that makes that makes perfect sense doesn't it and it's interesting you and I'm not sure we're we're down the road of addiction yet, but we're we're for me that that's the start of many people's stories that take them to addiction. Yeah, oh no, I think that's an incredibly important point. That's that's not addiction. You're right, but I think what we begin we get addicted to because let's be fair, most people will refer to that as self medication in some way or another, won't they? You know, it's that numbing of the world. It's that feeling like a fit in and that sort of self-medicating all of the the pain and the discomfort away, right? I completely get that. But you're right. I think it, we're not there at addiction at that point. It's when doing that, taking that, whatever that is, and we'll come on to everything other than substance, I think, as well. But it's when that thing becomes obsession it becomes something you you tell yourself you cannot function in any way 
not just those few circumstances or few situations. You can't function at all unless I've had weed or coke or whatever else it may be, the thing you've done. That's the thing when we're down the line of, of addiction. I was I was just listening to that and thinking, okay, this is a, probably a good point to, to define this. right? Dictionary definition, broadly speaking, of addiction is an inability to stop doing or using something, especially if something is harmful. Okay, that's a fairly straightforward description, right? My definition of it is slightly further than that, and I've just mentioned this. It's when it goes from something I like to being something that I can't stop thinking about to something that I can't stop doing to something that I literally have to do even if I know it's detrimental to a host of things, including myself and those around me, something I have to do at the expense of things I know I should do instead. And this is where it then becomes a thing that can affect if it's young enough school life or college or uni or work or relationships, because now the reality stops. And this is a part of the conversation I think that's interesting and I, I wanted to ask you is, in my journey of, of understanding my own addictions, of, of which there have been substance and behavioural, so mostly cigarettes and alcohol when I was sort of early 20s, and then behavioural. As I look back on it now, being where I am, the, the bit I don't think I was aware of, the bit I could never see coming, was what's often defined as the madness. There are times where I would be doing things and there's a little bit of my brain, a little bit of our brain that goes, I know I shouldn't do it. You remember the old you, you, Tom and Jerry cartoons of the 80s with the angel and the devil on the shoulder, right? It's that analogy, yeah. right? And you've got the angel going, no, we shouldn't do this. You should be working on the project or going to work. And the devil going, ah, just do it. It's when that voice literally becomes so loud Nothing else matters. But without fail, and I've never met an addict in recovery who hasn't said this, without fail, every time we've then done it, in an instant, there's the guilt and the shame and the, oh, what have I done? Even though we know that we've been driven by this motor and even though ADHD might have been, or inevitably has been part of that. And I wonder if that's, because we've spoken about dopamine and you mentioned that a lot of these are dopaminogenic. Is, is that some way faulty wiring is the only word that comes to my head in terms of how our brains are utilizing or perceiving that rush of dopamine. I've often described it as it's an unhealthy dopamine seeking, but it feels better than healthy. You know, I know I could feel good if I go for a walk, but this makes me feel completely different, so I'll do that instead. Does that make any sense to either of you? You waiting for either me to or, speak, Sarah? Either or in your experience, because I don't know whether that makes sense. All sorts going through my head, because... Me too. Yeah, any addiction, it isn't isn't straightforward isn't linear no it happens for a myriad of reasons so whether it is the fact you have an untreated disorder and you're looking for that dopamine whether it is trauma yeah it's a trigger from the past 
um, whether there are other coexisting conditions yeah. alongside. You know, is there depression going on? Is there anxiety going on? It's never, ever straightforward. Ever. No. And no. It's really hard to get apart until you are one-on-one with somebody. It, you know, all of recovery, like all of health and mental health, you know, you have to have that when when the decision comes to change, because that's what it is, mm-hmm. you're making a decision to change something. When that decision comes, the assessment at that point is useful in terms of helping you to understand mm. what's going on and what is driving the feelings and the thoughts you're having mm. for whatever reason. Um, then there's change again isn't it isn't linear no. so you don't just make a decision and you change oh and no it's going to be relapse yeah yeah and relapse will happen for all sorts of reasons but relapse is a useful thing because it helps you understand what's driven to that point what happened yeah. what were those triggers you know relapse is never failure no it's about learning more and about moving on are we more at risk tell of... you and we'll kill you well yeah so here's a question. Are yeah. we more at risk as ADHDers of relapsing? According to some of the research literature, yes. So there is a fantastic consensus statement out there written by Susan Young and her um, colleagues, some of the, the big names in the world of ADHD. So um, Samuel Cortez, Joe Johnson does lots of sessions, Peter Mason, David Nutt, um, and they look at substance use disorder Mm. it's more about substances because we know that in the world of in the world of addictions there is more than just substances right yeah um and they talk about how you how somebody with adhd or undiagnosed adhd you know where the, the the stats will show you that um you are more likely to present with substance use disorder and ADHD than the general population. So there's something that I was reading earlier on and it was a quote from quoting an article and it was dated 2010 and the stats were 58% of the population had a coexisting substance use disorder. Now this was 2010. I wouldn't like to say that's still the same, but you know that's more than half. More than half of the people that were in this study had a substance use disorder wow. with ADHD. That's that's quite a lot. Wow. Yeah. That's not insignificant. Yeah. No. Blimey. But it's not surprise it's not surprising because until we come across these four letters and what they mean and, and find our tribe, as as people say, um, we are that teenager finding things that work for yeah. us. Yeah. And what's coming across, what I'm hearing in this conversation is that there's, there's something about a, a discomfort that doing something makes go away. And that's the, that drives this. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And it's, um, I think that phrase that Sarah's just used is really important in this conversation. Well, addiction itself isn't linear. And and some of the research I've been doing points to the fact that rarely, if ever, is somebody who's predisposed to addiction going to only struggle with one addiction in their lifetime. 
it's more common that we struggle with one thing and then another. And, um, you know, the, the, blimey, I don't know anyone in, in recovery that hasn't struggled with more than one, but there's, I was reading some, some information and we've, we've spoken about addiction isn't just substance use. So bringing it right up to current times, um, I was trying to research what's the, what's the thing that most young people are at risk of developing first as an addiction now. Because I think if we'd gone back 20 years, maybe 30 years, let's say, pre, pre-internet, we'd probably have been still down the road of tobacco or alcohol and then maybe other substances. I don't think it takes any great jump to guess what the answer is now, which is anything connected to the use of a screen or an internet-connected device. What's scarier is how young kids are at risk of showing signs of addiction. You know, now we can all make jokes and we can all um, sort of accuse parents and roll our eyes at parents when we see, you know, toddlers out in pushchairs with a tablet and things, oh, net, you know, digital nanny and things. That's okay. I see that. The issue is the research all points to the fact that we now have kids developing the patterns of addiction dependency and and this compulsion at a much younger age and what's worse is the availability of the content right it's scary i think you know we're talking offline some of the research it says how often and how young children are when they're seeing pornography for, for the first time now is frankly horrific but if you take all of those children that may be exposed to pornography at a young age, it's abhorrent. That's a fact. If you then assume that out of those children, the ones with ADHD may have that predisposition to then seek that feeling that they get from seeing that, they're at risk of developing a really unhealthy addiction to content online at a really young age. And yet... We reach the sort of age you were talking about, Andrew, secondary school, maybe towards the end, where we get a bit more exposure then, even now, to things like drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be. And it's amazing how many people put down that digital addiction for a while, hyper-focus, let's call it that, on something new. I've discovered booze, I've discovered weed or whatever it may be, end up as an adult, going, I have a problem, pick that, go, I am in recovery, I've recovered from that, and then pick up the addiction that was with them first. We've seen it for years with pornography, and we're going to see it earlier and more, I honestly believe now, with screen addiction starting so young. And if we are predisposed to this, this is about, and I'll come to you on this, Sarah, because the education piece, and you you spoke about the um, sort of, kids and prison service and things, right? This is about early education, really early education for parents and schools and educators to say, we have to be very, very careful now. We are going to see kids getting into an awful lot of trouble if we're not careful. And is there anything we can do to avoid that? I suppose is where my head constantly goes. I think about this every day, but what I don't know what the answer is apart from education. 
we're looking purely at ADHD, then yeah, education, identification, the earliest opportunity treatment. Mm. Um, but not just the education of people who may be able to pick up the symptoms, but education of the young person. Yeah. Explain to the young person what that diagnosis means, what that feeling they get ha- they have. We know, and this isn't just ADHD, um, sort of speaking with different parents around where we live at the like so sort of yeah. support places that that I've I've gone to in different parents one of the things that was quite disturbing I think it was just it was about this time last year we were talking about the impact of lockdown mm-hmm. and the impact of lockdown on um sex education or uh, the lack of it yeah 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 and there was some concerning situations happening I'm not going to go into the details because it blew my mind but one of the, I, I remember one of the quotes is that there are young girls out there who believe, and we're talking people who are sort of in year nine and year 10, so what, 13, 14, yeah. who believe because of porn that if their boyfriend does not strangle them during sex, yeah. that they are not loved. Yeah, I know, I've seen the same. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. It's shocking. And then... You know, if we've got vulnerable kids with neurodevelopmental difficulties and the world and their peers who may or may not have the same difficulties are telling them this is what mm. a, a healthy relationship is, then that becomes tricky as well. It does. It has to be about education. It does. Yeah. And, it, you know, this isn't just uh, an ADHD difficulty in terms of pornography and healthy relationships. It's uh, everyone. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. It's early um, education. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, but... It's interesting. You say early education. I always I, I tell this whenever I teach, but the first time addiction was mentioned to to me in any context to do with neurodivergent conditions was when our sons were still in the infant school, so junior school maybe. I think they were about five and seven, and we they were both diagnosed with autism at that point. We met an educational psychologist in the Senko. I can't remember. I just remember the conversation suddenly going very grave, very serious, and the Ed Psych saying, as parents and as teachers, you've got to learn to distinguish between what are autistic patterns of behaviour and just regular childhood patterns of behaviour and what patterns of behaviour that can become addiction will look like because, and it was a real sort of, what statement because your sons are more at risk of developing unhelpful addictions to things at a younger age because of their autism and if you as parents aren't able to spot that they may well end up as statistics in the criminal justice system i mean it was like the biggest wake up parents you haven't just got autistic kids. You've got this to worry about now. I mean, I joke now. Go. That should have been a wake up call for me to go. Oh, oh, unhealthy obsessions with things. I should maybe I should pay pay attention. But you know, straight over my head at that point. But I remember being sort of horrified, and it still sort of horrifies me that that must is the same now, and yet it probably goes unnoticed. And we, it's it's this thing of understanding it isn't just substances. Understanding addictions aren't just substances, you know. I, I know you you guys have got things like Nice Guidelines and DSM. So you've you yeah. we were chatting Sarah about what's what's defined as what to look at, at for or what meets the yeah. criteria from from a diagnostic point of view. 
-hmm. I think the medical model's really useful. The way I define it, part of the biggest problem we have is what I class as the social model or the social conversation of how do we think about what an addiction is and what's acceptable, right? Now, you and I have, were having this conversation just before we started about, and it's perverse when you think about it, what's an acceptable addiction yeah. and what's not, right? It's so people's, people's stigma and viewpoints. Yeah. So you used a brilliant example, and I'm going to get it wrong. You said the difference between somebody who's got a problem with alcohol or says they've got a problem with alcohol and somebody who uses the same word with something like heroin, you'd be looked at completely different, wouldn't you? You know, and oh, you know that that, and I hate this word, but that that dirty smackhead compared to oh, well, he just has a little bit of drink too much now and again, yeah. and again we then pull that back to, so what? So yeah, he has 15, 16 cups of coffee a day, and yeah, or have uh, seventeen, eighteen cigarettes in half a morning to get the hand. Yeah, you know, it's that social construct of what's acceptable. It is not, you know, having having a little bit of coke on the weekend or having some cat. Yeah that's okay but if you use it too much yeah then that's wrong yeah so what's too much who who gets to decide that it's too much right and it's that harmful part it is it's the harmful part for that person when it's hurting you and whether that's not physically whether that's emotionally whether that is about the relationships around you when it's hurting you it's a problem yeah and you may get a handle on it you may be able to do it yourself which is cool um you've got the physical side of things mm. which you know throughout my career every single time when I have worked with anybody who is drinking um harmful amounts of, of alcohol mm. you do not stop it do not stop it dead right now do no, not stop no. it. just don't stop it um it's about healthy reduction it's about working with people around you because of the physical complications mm. of stopping alcohol suddenly mm. um again you know it's really tricky when you have stopped drinking Christmas now everything's about the booze yeah it is we'll go out have a drink you know, mm. you go to a barbecue in the summer. Oh, go on, have one bottle. Mm. It won't hurt you. Mm. You'll be all right with one bottle. You've got a handle on this now. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. It is. really, really hard. And again, that's that's society. You know, alcohol is acceptable yeah. to most people. Um, it is. I wonder how... I, you have to wonder how people would feel about alcohol if it was being sold by somebody on a street corner. Well, look, not so many years ago, it was prohibited, and you know, it was it was under the table, and it was under the counter, and mm -hmm. and it, it and it did become more of a problem, right? You know, go back to the mm -hmm. information in prohibition; it was more problematic, and there was more problematic drinking as well, you know. But that's the difference between, you know, it's like the alcopop syndrome, right? Where we talk about alcohol when alcopops in the nineties came out, WKD and every hooch, and I remember all these things. We are literally marketing 5% plus alcohol and it's deliberate at young teenagers, not 17-year-olds, not 18-year-olds at kids, right? Now, that in itself is just wrong, but it happens to legitimise it. Oh, well, it's only, a, it's only a fruity drink. Yeah, but if it's a fruity drink that leads you to problems, that doesn't matter whether it's fruity or tastes like, you know, engine oil it's still a problem right but this this conversation and you've just touched on something and i hadn't thought of this until you mentioned it right you know if somebody's saying i'm going to put myself into recovery for for problems with alcohol don't 
think that cold turkey is the answer straight away. Right now, I'm going to layer onto this. You mentioned that if we've got ADHD, we're more ri at risk of relapse anyway. Right? Mm -hmm. Fine. I think that the there is a what's the word I'm looking for here? Not reductionist, like an absolutist theory with ADHDers. I've heard people say, well, I feel like I'm all or nothing because of my ADHD. And if I'm in, I'm all in. Well, yeah, but if you suddenly are all into your recovery from whatever it is and you think that the answer is abstinence, unless you are mentally supported and emotionally supported and really well prepared to deal with what that's going to feel like, right, and what withdrawal will feel like, it's probably going to get an awful lot worse. I don't see that ending well. And again, it's the understanding that we can have the same kind of symptoms of withdrawal from non-substance addictions as well. Right? How many parents listening... The psychological side. Right. How many times have you seen parents tell a kid to turn off the screen and see in the tantrum? Right? I use this as an analogy a lot. People say, how do I spot screen addiction in my kids? I say pay attention to their reactions when you tell them it's time to come off. Pay attention to their reactions when you say, look, not, you know, we're, we're going to a family event and you can't take your screen. Because if their reactions feel over the top and they feel extreme, I'd be paying a bit more attention at that point to hold on. What does this actually mean to my child? What are they getting from that? Because that doesn't feel like I want to finish that game. That, to me, would feel like something else. And it's, you know, what's the phrase, Andrew, you mentioned that we see on the adverts for gambling all the time? Not just stop. Uh, when the fun stops. Oh, stops. that's so not. When the fun stops, stops. It makes it sound so easy. Right, yeah, because if I've got a gambling addiction, I'm going to find that dead easy. By the way, you've just given me a £10 buying bonus and whatever they advertise to make it even easier for me to go and do it. I mean, it's it's insanity in itself, isn't it? But it appeals to that impulsive, poor decision-making side, I think, of ADHD brains that goes, just one more, just another game, just another video, just another whatever it may be. And if we can't stop that just another, whatever it is, that's when I think we've got to start going, okay, what does stopping look like? What do I need? What, what support do I need? And it's like everything. Putting your hand up and saying I have a problem is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do, which is why so many people don't. Because we're shamed into yeah. saying so, you've got so a problem. What I'm picking up here is there's, this is one of those multi-strand things. And, and we are, in our conversation, shifting like a, like a needle jumping on a record. For those of us that can... Well, well vinyl's cool again it now, is, yeah. isn't it? So you can people will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but th there's a few issues here. Because the, we, we started talking about substances and dopamine and that very sort of biological approach okay. to, to understanding this. And the more I'm listening to you two talk, the more I'm hearing that's not addiction. It's not about the biology. It's not about the substance. It's about the context of that and the meaning of that. 
Um, and yes, some of those less acceptable um, dependences are less acceptable because they're about social taboos. Mm. So you you guys have been talking about alcohol being socially acceptable, but you know if you go to the speakeasies in America when prohibition was kicking off, it was a very yeah. different type of situation. Um, so often the, the addiction is grounded in something that is socially not acceptable. Am I right? So then we're, we're tying our own in addiction we're tying our own distress and our own discomfort with something that is socially uncomfortable for everybody else yeah i think there is definitely that's the the phrase i want to use and this isn't scientific at all this is just something i've i've come to the mind of that's what i class as like a classic definition of addiction when we when we are doing those socially unacceptable behaviors or indulging in those socially unacceptable behaviors that um that are that we know are wrong that we know cause harm but that we are incapable of stopping right however i think what i've seen more recently as well is people indulging or overindulging in things that to most people would seem perfectly innocuous like workaholics or exercising too much or you know people that can't say no when they're asked to help at the expense of now all of those things i think are probably doing similar things in the brain at some point they probably get a, a release of the same kind of dopamine rush because i'm doing good or i'm working well or whatever and it's the problem comes when the person that's doing it doesn't realize it's a problem yet you know the the, the that that model of the person that always says yes, I'm, they're always there to help someone else because we've got all sorts of things tied in from an ADHD point of view and fear of rejection and emotional dysregulation and, and a, a desire to be liked and all of that sort of involved. And yet you've got your family or your wife or your partner going, you are never here for us. Why are you never here for you? are always doing things for other people, but it's good to... No, actually, if you're getting told this is a problem, it's time to look at this and go, why can't I stop doing this? Doesn't matter how many people say you're doing good. Why can't I stop doing this? And why am I not hearing the other side of that conversation? And that's when it comes back to what have you been told? What is it rooted in? It's a phrase I think we've used before is, for me, the point where it's obvious to you, to the person that you have an addiction, is the manifestation of an awful lot of something else that's gone on before for who knows how long. And that's why I think the one thing I want to be really clear on that I've learned is as an ADHD, recovery from addiction for me and for everyone I've met and worked with with ADHD has to include some kind of therapy or counseling to figure out why as well as some kind of a system, a program, a structure to stay recovered, to stay whatever clean means to you or sober means to you. Because if you don't have both, if you don't address the why, you won't see it coming again as easily. You know, there's, 
Sorry, this is a really ageist reference to anyone under the age of about 30. All I'm going to say is, before I tell you what I'm going to say, press pause, open YouTube, and type in the Pink Panther and Cato. It's politically incorrect, right? But just look at the character of Cato, then come back and you'll understand this reference. Right. Now I've done that, right? I can see you two laughing because you know. The best description of an addictive mind to, that I ever got was it's like Cato. Because when you're least expecting it, it leaps out from behind a cupboard or under the bed and makes you do the thing you don't want to do again. And before you know it, you're fighting with yourself. That is the madness of being an, addi being an addict is not knowing that you're doing it and everyone else can see you are. Right. And it's it's understanding how your ADHD or, or other is interplaying with that and why. And being able to listen to people who are saying this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel in control, whether it's working too many hours or snorting or injecting or drinking or viewing or whatever it is, if somebody or more than one people are saying, this doesn't feel right, the person has to get to the point where they go, okay, yeah, I probably admit that. But I also think, and I'll ask you to this as, as, as nurses experienced for many years, I think that admitting it is harder when we're ADHD as well and when we're autistic as well because... And I don't want to use the word masking. This theory of you, you touched on it, Andrew. You know that you were talking about the secondary school model of you're trying to fit in and you know you don't. So you find things that help you feel like you fit in. If we've had so long trying not to admit that we don't feel like we fit in, I think, therefore, it makes it that much harder for us to admit that not just that we ADHD or autistic, but actually there is an addiction problem there as well. Because that's another layer of, oh, you're really different, you. You're not just different because you've got ADHD. You're ADHD plus. And I wonder if that, I don't know, from, from your experience feels right, that it's that fear of, you know, this is actually who I am, whether I like it or not. That we that we we don't want to lay bare. So it's coming through loud and clear. It isn't what you are addicted to. It's why you're addicted to it. That seems to be just shouting from the rafters in this conversation, and that's that's making me think differently about this. You know this. This, this idea that there is something that I'm doing that's harmful, but actually it's because there's something over here that I'm not paying attention to. And, and this is helping me not pay attention to that. Yeah. It's almost, I don't know, sorry, do you, do you get that? The way I would describe it, it's like I, le I in the past I've lent into that impulsivity. I knew I was impulsive. I knew I had that, that sort of inattentive capacity, but I kind of just let that take over because it felt more comfortable because it was easier than being in the real world. 
surface, but that impulsivity will also have led to good places in the past, not just negativity. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, in the, yeah. 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 And, 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 and is that one of the reasons to lean into it? Because there's also that, even if it's just that 1% of knowledge in your brain that on this one occasion, yeah, yeah. I did something like this and it was really good. Yeah. So it, it, that, that, that again, isn't it? It's that myriad of all these different things and all these different experiences that make you go, whoom. There's things, for me, when we're talking, there's things like, okay, so you've developed an addiction to to benzodiazepines, yeah. diazepam. But if I don't use that, I can't sleep. And if I can't sleep, then I'm more ADHD. And it's come back to, I'm just thinking about why, what is it that starts that process? Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's just no, how I No, no, when you're right. Talking about the whys. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there is there is actually something soothing about feeding the addiction, but it it buys a bit of space, a bit of time from that distress, that what, yeah, and that. But it, it's functional, and actually, fearing addiction is is potentially an unhealthy way of seeing it because it's it's part of how you cope. And if you just say stop it, like the child who's on the screen, you've got to turn that yeah. off now. Oh, I can't. What am I going to yeah. do instead? Yeah. Uh, uh, and that. So, so the. It's because all of these issues are, t are tied up in all sorts of social preconceptions about about what substances are or or unhealthy behaviours, or you know workaholism yeah. and. It, 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 the, the, it's it's an it's an absolute nightmare. There's so many layers to what's going on um, that it's difficult to get to the the why because there's so much what. Yeah, there is. Uh, we were talking earlier about we were talking earlier about David Nutt. Now, substance misuse has lost that man jobs. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he's a professor of of. Um, I'm not sure if it's neurobiology or, but it, it's sort of in this field. But he used to be the government's drugs czar, okay, and he was sacked by the government because of his um, approach to substance use. Okay, now we're going back. I maybe it was even the nineties, um, but he was sacked because it, it didn't fit with the the um, political agenda of substances are bad. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so he lost his job. He lost his job because he was saying these substances potentially have use uh. in medicine. But they are we also actually just doing the same as the Americans did with the speakeasies? And are we driving people to substance misuse because of prohibition? And he lost his job because he's, he was saying that. Um, and it's taken... The rest of his career to date to get to the point where he's doing um, research into the impact of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms on mood disorders, um, ecstasy and its impact. Yeah, ecstasy and its impact on post-traumatic stress disorder. Through my career, I've seen social perceptions of substances change, but still, there's this taboo that that, that is bound up in this language of dependence and addiction. It was just jumped up. Yeah. And depression. That, that, that's another one. There's a study going on for ketamine. R what, for use with depression? 
use people with resistant depression. There's a, a, a it's it's a licensed yeah. product. Esketamine yeah. is a licensed product. a licensed product. You can get a nasal spray. See, the one that came to my ketamine. mind then was, and 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 I've this was brought up as a question was about medical cannabis, mm. right? Now we've we've <laughs> spoken about can, cannabis as being a potentially you know, a substance we can become addicted to, right? Fine, misuse. But there it is. You can now get it on prescription, I believe, for certain conditions, yep. medical cannabis. And, and my understanding is that it comes in different strengths and it's this is for use for this purpose. Now, that's fascinating because you talk about eketamine as well and things. Is this, therefore, like you say about David Nutt, does it take... Does it take conversation from people who understand that there is different neurobiology, that there is different neurology, that there are different responses to, for example, uh, excuse me, ADHD level, um, that there, you know, if you give somebody with ADHD a stimulant and somebody without ADHD a stimulant, they will react differently. Hold on a minute. Just because in the past something has been seen as potentially taboo, is that not the point of good research and the point of good understanding of well could it help an group of people and might that be a route to recovery for some people as well you know to say well yeah. i can now not be dependent on this but have a safe use of i think that's 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 such a fascinating thing to have brought up because it's so important we demonize things all right no actually no Scrap the we, that's wrong. Society demonizes things based on historic information, not current information. It does. Is that, is, yeah. that feels like a fair statement to me. We always base off what's gone before, not what, you know, you two are looking at studies happening now. And we're waiting for the long-term results. But hold on a minute. If you demonize everything, what do people do when something's demonized? If they've got a predilection to impulsive behavior, I'll go seek out what I'm not supposed to seek out. Thank you. Whether it's driving too fast or throwing yourself off a building and saying, I'm an adrenaline junkie, quote unquote, or taking something. It's all for a purpose. It's all to do something, isn't it? And I think that's the conversation is yeah. what is it you're trying to do and why? Are you trying to get away from something? Are you trying to mute something? Are you trying to forget something? Or are you struggling with life because it feels so mundane that you feel like you need extra? And what can be done about that? And is there an alternative to that behaviour, substance, etc., that you've chosen as a route to achieve that? But for me... If if being an addict was less demonised, I think more people would be willing to say, actually, do you know what? I do feel I struggle. I do feel like I've probably overused or overindulged or that this has been a problem. But because of the societal pressures, I've never felt able to say it. And I think if it was not like that so much, like you say about that, you know, image of a heroin addict we mentioned earlier. I mean, if it was more compassionate in the way we view things, more people could probably get the help they need. 
ADHD or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, ADHD carries its own. And most days I take amphetamines. It's it's an illegal drug. You can buy it on the street corner. Um, But guess what? When I woke up this morning, I wasn't the first thought through my mind was, oh, I've got to get my elephants out. They, it, it, yeah. If if we were depend, if I was dependent on my ADHD treatment, and I I, I do use it, but I, I I I can do without it. Um, if I was dependent on it, there wouldn't be days where I'd be thinking, now did I take no. this morning or did I not? No. Because if I didn't, I'd be going, where yeah. the hell are they? Yeah. I want them. I need them. I can't manage yeah. without them. So so when you were talking there, there was some something that sort of dropped and it was a, a thought i had because I, I knew we would be talking about addiction at some point and i was out walking the dog along the river the other night and i there was something that really resonated with what you were just saying about the the getting away from um and i'm, I'm wondering whether this this misuse behavior whether it's a substance or it's or it's doing something is it about Doing that thing that is seen as as bad, and and I have I have a, a a dependence upon it. Is it about if that is I'm doing that to take something negative away, and I can't stop? That's mm. a problem. But if I'm doing the same thing and it's bringing something positive into my life, that's not a problem. No, I agree. But I, I think the piece that goes with that then. This rolls back into the relationships conversation from last week and it rolls back into all the other conversations we've had so far. That's about how we communicate that and how willing we are to allow people into our lives to to say to us, hey, listen, are you okay? You know, to, to, to notice when something is being done in a healthy way or what appears to someone else to be an unhealthy way and that conversation to be okay to have. You know, rather than, again, at the moment, you know the stigma attached to saying I I am or I'm not coping. It's, I don't know, it, yeah, I, I, I definitely think you're right on that. But there is always the why to be looked at. There is always the why to be looked at. And from an ADHD point of view, I, I'll go back to that. If I didn't understand the why, if I had not done my my work on the past, I couldn't do any work towards my future. That's just goes without saying you know and I, and i think that helps me mitigate going back to this thing about risk of relapse that helps me mitigate the relapse because i can think about why i can go am i in the same situation is are things the same have i got the same concerns struggles problems now and if i can do it rationally and go no then i can tell myself well actually i'm safe i feel okay so therefore i don't have a need but it's it's having people around me that that enable that, um, and not everyone's got that. And I go back to what you said at the start. Sorry, you know this is this is where when someone's homeless, for example, because they're fallen prey. Not not when they pick up an addiction after homelessness. Before is you know I see this in, in Birmingham when I did work with homeless charities, people that fell became homeless because they'd fallen into addiction. Now, if those people had been picked up as potentially having ADHD earlier, 
and got the support for ADHD and maybe even the medication for ADHD, may they have had a chance to have avoided that story because they wouldn't have been so susceptible, which does lead to this question. And I'm going to ask this, and I know I'm sure I've asked it before, but I hear it all the time. So I just want to give it to one of you. If my child is on ADHD meds, are they at risk of becoming an addict? So yeah, I know what the answer is, but I just wanted to ask it and smile at you while you both shut your heads, right? But you come, you, when, you've been asked that, right? Because I know I have. And and kids themselves, it was you know not long ago, I gave a, a young person option. Me and Angie were talking about it about, and the question that the young person who was awesome, by the way, yeah, sent a message saying, "Can I get addicted to this?" Yeah. And I, what a fantastic question! Yeah, what an yeah. awesome question to ask me as a clinician. Yeah, and as a young person to ask that. Yeah. Um. No. You may like the. But yes. Yeah, but yes as well. But the <laughs> actual tablet you're taking. Yeah. No. Is physically not going to be addictive, mm. as in physically, you know, that there isn't withdrawal. You're not. It, it washes out of your system. Yeah. But. There are complications in how it helps you, the feelings it gives you when you are doing well. Um, yeah. Now there... it's, it's at, at, if you don't treat mm. the outcomes, we know the researched outcomes for people who are not only undiagnosed but also untreated, whatever that treatment means, and the predictive factors. Right. So we know that young people are more likely to. Um, experienced teenage pregnancies they are more likely to um come in contact with criminal justice agencies mm. addiction services so it's it's that it's that juggle and again mm. it's the coexisting coexisting difficulties as well and you know what see if i take anything away from this conversation it's that phrase over and over again because here we are discussing addiction in isolation but like you said at the beginning, Sarah, never, ever is it just addiction, ever. And we've got to look at the coexisting with ADHD and we've got to look at the, the, any trauma. We've got to look at the history. We've got to look at everything as well as. And if that means you have to therefore talk to different people who work for different agencies and, you know, different specialists, then that's important. I think for, to, to say is this isn't a standalone topic. You can't just say my addiction is because of this. It's got nothing to do with that. Cause that's just never going to be right. But it might mean that it takes longer to find, and I don't want to use the word, the answer, but to, to find the understanding of why. And therefore, how to to manage or beat your addiction as well, or to recover from your addiction, because you do have to understand how everything else is connected. And I think it's really it's important. That, yeah, just when you were talking about part of that sort of that relapse planning and prevention. Yeah. It when you work with your care coordinator, you have a diagnosis of ADHD or autism, and you are working with your care coordinator and addiction services, and you're looking at relapse indicators. There has to be planning in those relapse indicators that reflect the challenges that somebody with ADHD yeah. and autism may have. 
Yeah. That, that has to be part and parcel of what you're doing. So it isn't just the whys, it's then it moves into the, so how can we support those whys yeah. and those what? Yeah, I've come, yeah. What do we need to know? Is addiction services staff, how do we help this person who is, you know, the research in the consensus statement tells you you are, you know, you're at a higher chance of relapsing, you are at a higher chance of um, the recovery not being sustainable. What's making it not sustainable? Yeah. What's triggering? Yeah. And and like I say, with, within recovery, there will be relapses, there will be triggers, whether it's one or two or three or four, mm. how they then help you. Whilst you have ADHD, whilst you have autism and you have a neurodivergent brain, mm. how that then kicks into all the guilt. Yeah. And that you're not a bad person because you had a relapse on this day. No. It doesn't make you horrible. This doesn't make no. in that black and white thinking and it's No. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right again therein is that change. If we change the conversation about those kind of things, like relapsing or even just struggling to stay recovered, right? You have to start with for me the 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 praise of but you're trying. You are trying there, there is yeah. there is a phrase within any twelve step program, right, which I think sums this up perfectly. It's about progress, not perfection. You don't walk into rehab, whatever rehab means, and go, right, done that. Oh, I've just struggled all my life with addiction, and now I've decided I'm not going to anymore. Thanks very much. Off you go and never... Please, if it was that easy, right? If it were that easy, no, you don't. You struggle with the concept of why, and like you say, understanding how to avoid the why. And you have to be honest and other people have to be honest with you to say, it's okay for this to be a struggle. All right. If, I, if I'm told that, at least it's not an excuse. It's not a get out of jail card to say, oh, well, I may as well just relapse then. It's not that. It's saying it, it being hard is all right. But understanding why that happened, what was the trigger, like you said, that's, the, that's where the help comes in for me. And it will be tricky for practitioners as well, because you, you will also have somebody sat in front of you who is, you know, they are awesome at masking. Yeah. They are awesome at hiding. Yeah. Not just um, addictions, yeah. difficulties, but their neural yeah. developmental differences. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Exactly. And that makes it really tricky. Yeah, it does. It's really tricky. It does. Yeah. And I think that's the conversation where I know there's this sort of there's a push at the moment for when, you know, the first time a young person's picked up by the police that, you know, is that the the opportunity or should that be the trigger for an autism and an, a, an ADHD sort of assessment of some kind to go, look, hold on, are we missing anything? Right. And whilst I think, yeah, that's that's really good for me, it's the point of if that person does not know that they are neurodivergent, it's twice as hard. If they do know and they don't want to tell you, it's twice as hard. So you're right, the people they're trying to help have got a really difficult job at that point. If they're not specialist trained, if they don't know what to look for, or the signs, the language, or the behaviours, what do you... I don't want to treat, but what, what do you look to help first, right? But if you have all the information... You can go, ah, well, maybe that behavior is triggered by that. Maybe that response is because of that. Um, right. 
as this is a discussion that could run and run, I'm trying to think of a, a, a sort of a succinct way, is that the word, to wrap this up. Um, so let me ask you both a question, and I hope it, this isn't one of those questions, Andrew, he says. It will, it will be. be. I'll try not to. As nurses, clinicians, if somebody comes to you for assessment and they are honest with you and they say, you know, I struggle with X, what, what does that mean to you in terms of looking at the way you might treat them? Is it a case of, okay, perhaps we need to deal with addiction before we can look at treatment, if we're talking medication? Quite often, yes, right. but not necessarily, yes. Right. So, um, if someone comes undiagnosed yeah. and says, I'm having this struggle, I think it might be ADHD, it's usually possible to navigate and, and build a picture of whether or not that's ADHD. Right. Yeah, we can, we can do that. But often, that that addiction is then a barrier to that first step that nice guidelines tell us to do give a medication right. because if someone is abusing a dopaminergic substance which many illicit drugs are then adding another one in is just adding mm -hmm. to the problem we're not going to actually address the situation we see this in um probably sarah can speak more of this but um methadone treatment and people popping up with with heroin on top of right. that you know it's, it we've got to be careful with with that line between medicine and, and substance misuse and it where is it more stark in modern society i think than the prescription of dexamphetamine for adhd and the confusion that anybody who's not inducted into our world mm -hmm. and many of us that are inducted into the world that that sets about in your yeah. head why are we giving stimulants to hyperactive people? Mm. This is a controlled drug that society says needs to be controlled because it's so dangerous when it's out there yeah. on the street. Yet we'll give it to a six-year-old who can't concentrate on his maths yeah. lesson. So there are all these tensions all the time. And it's, this is where that, that whole what, why, and how story that's evolved through this conversation really comes about it isn't about what it isn't about whether it's clonazepam prescribed by your gp or whether it's um heroin that you're buying at, at the local mm. kebab shop I, I i don't know what it, it's not about that it's about why are you looking for the impact of that in your life mm. i agree it's causing problems. It's causing problems. How do we help you to to not have that cause problems? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it makes now yeah, it's perfect. Other, otherwise, I'm an amphetamine addict. <laughs> yeah, and as you say, I, you're not getting up in the morning craving them, or you know, get withdrawal from yeah. them. So yeah, that that sort of makes sense. Um, Sarah, is there anything you would like to add by way of sort of final words? for this at least episode on this because it's another one I know that's going to come back. Yeah. Um, so working when I was working along 
working within addiction services, getting referrals to NHS services when somebody has an addiction, so for mental health assessments, for um, for ADHD assessments, is really tricky. So there is no hard and fast guidelines on how long you should be abstinent before you've had a before you can have an assessment for ADHD. So the research will say around a month of abstinence, but the consensus statement recognises that this isn't always achievable. So what you need to be looking at, you need to be looking when you're doing your assessment on when you're speaking with the person then being substance free at that point, so not under the influence. Mm. Um, doing the assessment, looking at obviously the, the long term, so looking at childhood, which I'm going to come to in a minute, but also looking at times in their life when they have been abstinent, which is really useful yeah. in terms of looking for the symptoms of ADHD or whether there's other things. You have to have somebody, and it's in, again in the consensus statement, um, you have to have somebody who is skilled in assessment of mental health difficulties to look for all the other coexisting conditions that could be presenting like ADHD and isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming back to childhood, you when you do an ADHD assessment, it isn't, you know, a definite no, but you're looking for corroborative history. So you're looking for somebody to say what that person's ADHD symptoms are like currently and what they were like in their childhood. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're at the chaotic end of substance use, how many of them are speaking to their friends and family? How many have been disowned? How many don't want their family to know? Mm. If you're walking into a clinic, and it, it can be really tricky, um, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have the process started and that built in. We can acknowledge that somebody's inattentive, we can acknowledge that somebody's hyperactive, and we can acknowledge that they are impulsive or have social communication deficits. Whether they have a diagnosis or not, that can still be built in to the challenges they have in their relapse prevention. Um, it's changing. Things are getting better, but it is. You know, we talk about people who have addictions and people who are homeless at being at risk of exclusion from services, and that is a big word, exclusion. Yeah. So most of the people I worked with that were homeless didn't have access to GPs. They didn't have access to dentists. Um, and that's some of what we were doing. You know, we weren't. We weren't sort of doing groundbreaking stuff. We were, we were going, seeing people wherever they were. We were getting them registered with a dentist, getting them yeah. checked out with women's health clinics. Yeah. Um, looking at anything we could, as well as addictions. And we were going to them because part of the difficulty is that first step over the door. Of course it is. So we changed, we changed the outreach and we would go to the person. And at the time, I was working with a fantastic non-medical prescriber who was my supervisor in the team um and we would literally go to somebody and start them on methadone in the hospitals wow do it there and then let's get the prescription round it, it, it's a pilot and there's still pilots going on um but it's that reflection that it isn't easy to get an adhd mm. diagnosis when you're um when you are using substances or the other way if you have an ADHD diagnosis, getting treatment, like Andrew said, it's really tricky because mm-hmm. of because of all those difficulties um, in terms of alcohol, putting your blood pressure up and putting your heart rate up. And then we go, we're going to give this medication. Yeah. And it's the conversations we have about the risks, the risks of using caffeine, yeah, the, the risks of using alcohol alongside your medications. And that's going to 
reduce your access to the services you can get. So there will be lots of online services, you know, right to choose. Yeah. There will be lots of online services that just go, this is too much of a risk for us to take. You need to go through the NHS. Well, it's nearly eight years where we live now. Yeah. Five years in the next trust down. Yeah, yeah. That's eight years of, and then how long do they want you to be abstinent in your area? Mm. One of the things that the consensus statement says is there needs to be so much more research and not just for ADHD assessment, but for ADHD and substance misuse in terms of making sure that everybody's working to the same guidelines. Yeah. So people know where they stand. Yeah. Are we done? Oh, wait, I don't no, 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 no. Um, I'm sat. It's fascinating because I'm just thinking. There's that word abstinence again, though, isn't it? What services will say we we want yeah. you to be abstinent before we will accept this referral? Yeah. Um, rather than looking at what they're using, how are they using, how often they are using that that sort of thing. It's really tricky. Yeah. Really, really tricky. It is. It really is. I think that's a really valid that's point. Both of those. Um. So the, the the last point I would like to, to make on this, I suppose, is to speak to, it kind of picks up on partners, to speak to partners of people, ADHDs, autistic people who you you have concerns about, you know, have addictions, whatever they may be. Um, and it's something I've heard a lot now in in the recovery process. Hard as it is, whatever the pain that's been caused, whatever the, the the issues that have been caused, one of the things I'm hearing a lot is is when the ADHD is being blamed for the addiction or, well, you're just using your ADHD as an excuse. So I think what's important for me to say is it's neither of those things. It will never be that it's the excuse and it's not the cause. It has made it harder. It has potentially, as we've discussed, made it more likely that somebody unfortunately fell prey to addictions. But it is not something to be, if you like, weaponized in conversations. Um, I think the appreciation if somebody is saying to you that they've acknowledged an addiction, they've acknowledged a problem, is understanding what it means, what is the, the connection, the interplay between ADHD and whatever their addiction is, getting them the right support and recognising that, again, all of the sort of anecdotally, all of the evidence I've now seen is that if people have ADHD, they typically need to, and I'll go back to this phrase we've used a lot, understand the why, before they can really have any success with the staying recovered they have to know and and accept and acknowledge and and make peace with everything that's caused it whether that's the feeling like a loner or like you didn't fit in or the trauma or whatever it may be maybe it's part of an adhd mind being inherently inquisitive and wanting answers to questions i don't know or or on autistic mind i but we need to we need to address the why. We need to spend some time on that whilst we start the journey of recovery, whatever that means to you. Um, because without it, yeah, I think like that research says, we're at risk of relapse and we're at risk risk of worse than relapse because we don't have the actual answers. We just know that we've got a problem that's this. So it's 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 working on both strands and and finally to echo what you said, Sarah, nobody looks like an addict. 
Nobody behaves no. like an addict, right? And therefore, we can't judge addiction based on perceptions of what we think it should look like, sound like, behave like. Because if there's anything most addicts are really good at, it's keeping secrets and hiding in plain sight. Sadly, right? And I see you nodding, but that's true. So we have to not judge what we think addiction is or what we think it looks like. We just have to listen to people and hear them and go, okay, what support is it that you are looking for? How do we help? And if more people recognize that, therefore, they can maybe seek help because of that, I think that's one of the most positive things that could come out of the next few years. Because, um, yeah, that I think he's doing more harm than anything. You know, we don't all look like our perceptions of alcohol, it's drug addicts or anything else. So just look at people as people. However, that has been pretty heavy, I will say, but I think really important. And I'm so glad to have, have, have been able to share that with you two. Your knowledge and insight and your, your ability to sort of, A, cut through my multi-layered questions uh, and see the differences in topics is, is, I think, what makes this this podcast so important to be doing with you and with the Divergence Clinic because it's a, it's a real human approach to this, right? Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for that and I'm really grateful for you taking that time to do it with me. Um, and I will just say this to everyone watching. If you have comments, if you have questions, please use them. Please put them on YouTube. You can find the email address for the podcast on, on all the, the show notes as well. But please do like this episode if you if you found it useful share it with people that may find it useful um and and subscribe however you can do that because the more you do that the more people see this the more people we help and remember it's free it will always be free we three are not doing this for profit we're doing this to get better information into the this space and into this domain that genuinely we hope helps people so um the more you help us the more we can help other people in this way so Thank you both very, very much. I, I will say this. Have a splendid Christmas. We're not recording over, over Christmas. I'll tell you that for nothing. So have a splendid Christmas. Mm. Enjoy your jumpers. Enjoy your time off. And, uh, and folks, we will see you for episode, what will that be, six, uh, at some point in, my God, 2024. So there we are. That's a scary thought. But, folks, thank you very much. And uh, this has been the first of the addiction podcasts of Talk ADHD. See you soon.